Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> Professor Harvey K, my brother. Oh, that vibrato today, Professor K. That's not bad. Not too bad. Hartzell, is, is that you? It's been a long time. It's got to be like 10, 12 days since we last spoke. It's way too long. Can we not go that long? Longing makes the <laughs> radical heart grow fonder. <laughs> oh, well, you know, a lot's happened since then. So the question emerges. People may not understand this when I ask, unless they live in Kansas City, in the Kansas City area, Kansas City, Kansas included, that Hartzell is a personality. <laughs> he is a personality. He does not only podcasts, not only radio, he's the voice at times of Kansas City Public Radio, is that? NPR in Kansas City, yes, sir. Right. And he also is a man in public. He's out there. If you have a gala, you want this guy to host, okay? <laughs> if you're going to get married, you want him to perform the ceremony. <laughs> I need you as my agents when I need, Harvey K. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a question that has emerged between us here. And that is, if, if Hartzell is going to be doing galas, political galas and otherwise, should Hartzell have a tuxedo? You know what? I, I should tweet. Should Hartzell Gray, the public figure, have a tuxedo? Or in any case, Kitty should be running a, what do they call those things? GoFundMe or, uh, you know? <laughs> the Save a Hartzell Foundation. Right. Let, let Hartzell look like a penguin. What the hell? <laughs> Harvey K, if I'm going to grab a tuxedo, I think the world also wants to see you in a tuxedo. Do they make jean tuxedos? That's the question. <laughs> maybe somebody's listening and wants to buy you a tuxedo. Or maybe somebody's listening who owns a tuxedo shop and would like to gift you a tuxedo. So let me ask, what color tuxedo do you want? I'm a purist, Harvey K. You know me. Just the simple black and white maybe black on black i can maybe pull a black on black, black on black look. with the white shirt and the whole yep. routine okay mm -hmm. so now we have what and what size would you imagine yourself youth large <laughs> are you kidding what size jacket do you wear i'm a 38 38 you are slim that's that's a slim i'm a 40 i think right now i think I sort of vary like 39 to 41 right in there. So I stay 40. Hartzell Gray and Harvey K, the 2022 Blues Brothers coming to That's us. That's it. You Green got it. You. <laughs> Talking about large audiences, because I know that that movie, I mean, it would sell out. Hartzell Gray, Harvey K on the big screen. It would sell out. But you know what else sold out? That stadium in Fenway back in 19. 1944, Harvey K, because that's where we're going to take it. Every Tuesday, we reclaim that radical history of America. And FDR, we continue to learn, to be inspired by, to take hold of. And like I said, we're going to see how this man reads a stadium. FDR maybe reads it better than most, yeah? This is the second speech that we'll, that we'll address 
that was presented in a stadium. It might even be the third, but I know for a fact it's the second. The first one people may recall is when he gave that speech in June of 1936, where, you know, he basically, it was the most radical speech ever delivered by a president, or at least the most radical in a very direct way, radical in the sense of, he said, basically he was saying that the economic royalists complain that we want to overthrow American institutions. What he ended up saying is, well, they're not getting the story straight. We want to overthrow their power, the economic royalist power. That was at a stadium, Franklin Field in uh, Philadelphia. This is November 4, 1944, Fenway Park. Fenway Park. You've heard of Fenway, I think. Yeah. They got a pretty famous baseball team that plays there, yeah? Yeah, I <laughs> guess. <laughs> in fact, some epic Royals-Red Sox matchups back in the day, too. Oh, I bet. Oh, Jesus, I bet. I've been in Fenway. I've, seen, I've been at a ball oh, game wow. in Fenway. I'm trying to remember, who were they playing? They were playing the... Detroit Tigers, as wow. a matter of fact. That's a whole story which we can get into over a beer sometime. I was only 15, so I wasn't drinking beer at that time. <laughs> okay, address at Fenway Park. Let's be clear. FDR died, passed away on this day that you'll be hearing this, everybody, on April 12th, 1945. So November, December, January, February, March. This is like not even six months before he would pass away. And he's running for his fourth term as president. And this, you will recall, was the campaign during which he proposed an economic bill of rights for all Americans. He followed up that speech with a speech in which he called for voting rights for all Americans. No more of this denial of voting rights by way of poll taxes and literacy tests and thuggery in the South. So in this speech, he's going to Boston. Now, I want to remind everyone who's listening that probably in the late 30s and into the early days of World War II, and for quite some time afterward, it was the most racist and anti-Semitic city in the United States. It was infamous. It was the kind of thing where it wasn't just race relations were always a nightmare in Boston. It was also that the right-wing thugs who thought of themselves as Christians wouldn't hesitate to attack elderly Jewish folks on the streets. It was that kind of city. But in any case, FDR was not going to stay away. He was going to take his message to Boston because they were Democratic voters. And in this speech, when he goes up there, keeping in mind this is still the war is underway at this very moment in Europe, the Battle of the Bulge, probably the largest battle of World War II in Europe for the United States after D-Day. In the Pacific, it's a nightmare for the Marines and airmen who are serving there. And Roosevelt is in great part concerned about sustaining the spirit behind the war effort. But he's also already, as we said last time when he proposed the Economic Bill of Rights, he's also looking over the horizon at what might be, what might become of America. Would it become all the more, not just democratic, but social democratic? Could he encourage Americans to act to transcend racial and religious bigotry not just discrimination, but literally the segregation that prevailed in the South by law, in the North by custom. So he takes himself on the road to Boston and he presents this speech. And you'll pick up pretty quickly, I think, where he's going with this. So I'll start, Hartzell, I'll take the first section we think is important and I'll hand it over to you. Along the way, we'll explain a few things. November 4, 1944, address at Fenway Park, Boston, Massachusetts. Now FDR begins. This is not my first visit to Boston. I shall not review all my previous visits, 
I should have to go on talking for several days to do that. And radio time costs a lot of money. But I want to recall one visit back in October 1928 when I came here to urge you to vote for a great American named Al Smith. I want to pause for a moment. This is Harvey speaking now. Al Smith was the first Catholic to run for president of the United States in 1928. Irish Catholic, no less. And I can tell you that the Democrats had hopes that he might be able to transcend the fact that he was a Catholic. And in the Northeast, that was possible. In the South, it was nearly impossible to crack open the Protestants, especially Baptist South, to vote for an Irish Catholic from the North. Al Smith was destined to lose in 1928. However, when he began his campaign for president, he and others encouraged FDR to run for governor of New York to replace Al Smith, which FDR did for two terms and then himself ran for president. The sad thing is, and FDR gives no evidence of this during his speech, is that Al Smith turned on Roosevelt during the New Deal years. Al Smith joined the ranks of the opponents of the New Deal. He remained a Democrat in name, but he attacked the FDR administration for moving too far to the left. Shame on Al Smith is all I can say. Nevertheless, he's in Boston, a very Irish Catholic city, and FDR is not about to besmirch the memory of Al Smith, okay? So he says, I want to recall one visit back in October 28 when I came to urge you to vote for the great American named Al Smith. And you did vote for that eternally, Happy Warrior. That was the nickname. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts and your good neighbor, Rhode Island, both went Democratic in 1928, four years before the rest of the nation did. And that is when Roosevelt ran. This year, and I'm making no predictions, I just have a little hope. This year, we would like to welcome into the family of basically of the Democrats, Maine and Vermont. I'll just tell everyone. Historically, Maine and Vermont were Republican states. May seem hard to believe, given they now have a Democratic Socialist as their senator from Vermont. Maine remains very much a Republican state that's capable of voting for Democrats, although not often enough as far as I'm concerned. So now back to FDR's words. And while I'm speaking of that campaign of 1928, let me remind you that having nominated Al Smith for the second time for the presidency, I was then running at his request for the governorship of New York. And people were then, even then, saying that my health would not permit me to discharge the duties of public office. He is, of course, referring to his fact that he had polio. Back to FDR. Well, you know, I think that it is by now a pretty well-established fact that I managed to survive my four years as governor of New York. And at the end of that time, I went elsewhere. Little humor on FDR's part now that he's running for this fourth term as president. Now, I'm going to hand over to Hartzell now because we're going to go right to the heart of the matter. FDR was there in part to challenge Boston to overcome its longstanding racial and religious bigotry. Over to you, Hartzell. When I talked here in Boston in 1928, I talked about racial and religious intolerance, which was then, as unfortunately it still is to some extent, a menace to the liberties of America. And all the bigots in those days were gunning for Al Smith. Religious intolerance, social intolerance, and political intolerance have no place in our American life. Here in New England, you have been fighting bigotry and intolerance for centuries. I reminded a genealogical society, I think that they are called ancestor worshipers, I said to them that they know that all of our people all over the country, except the pure-blooded Indians, are immigrants or descendants of immigrants, including even those who came over here on the Mayflower. Can I just pause a moment, Hartzell? This to me is like the most essential paragraph we're going to read. 
And you have to understand, he's now about to cover all the American ethnicities. And I want to note, he's going to say the Smiths and the Joneses. In that fashion, you can bet in his mind, he figures this will speak to both whites and blacks. You can take it away. Okay, sorry. Today in this war, our fine boys are fighting magnificently all over the world. And among those boys are the Murphys and the Kellys, the Smiths and the Joneses, the Coens, the Carusos, the Kowalskis, the Schultzes, the Olsons, the Swobodas, and right here in the rest of them, the Cabots and the Lowells. All of these people and others like them are the lifeblood of America. They are the hope of the world. You know, and this is Harvey speaking now, on behalf of Kansas City, I want to explain to everyone what he was doing here. The Murphys and the Kellys, those are the Irish, okay? The Smiths and the Joneses, well, they could be Irish, but the Smiths said is, but basically those are the Welsh, okay? It's others, but especially the Joneses. But here's the important thing. Always the question came up why it was that so many African-American ballplayers, they would say, how come these people are named Jones? It's a Welsh name. Well, during the Civil War, a lot of troops that came south to fight the Confederacy came from Pennsylvania, which was a major settlement area for its coal mining for the Welsh who were coal miners back home. So you had all of these Smiths and Joneses who were coming south joined by black slaves, black slaves on the plantations. They only had one name, as I understand it. So the idea was, how do you register them? Well, presumably it was not unlike what happened at Ellis Island later in the century into the 20th century. So Smiths and the Joneses could refer to white or black Protestants, basically. The Coens, those are clearly Jewish Americans. The Carusos are the Italian Americans. The Kowalskis are, I think those are Polish Americans, possibly. The Schultzes are German Americans. The Olsons are Scandinavians. The Swobodas, too, would be, I suppose, Polish, okay, or at least some kind of Slavic East European. So he's really trying to cover his bases as much as he can at this moment. Well, to pick up where Hartzell left off with FDR's words, it is our duty, FDR says, to them, those young men and women overseas, to make sure that big as this country is, there is no room in it for racial or religious intolerance, and that there is no room for snobbery. Our young men and our young women are fighting not only for their existence, their homes and their families, they're also fighting for a country and a world where men and women of all races, colors, and creeds can live and work and speak and worship in peace and freedom and security. If we can shorten this war by one month, even by one minute, we shall have saved the lives of some of our young men and women. We must not let our comforts or conveniences, our politics or our prejudices stand in the way of our determination to drive, to drive relentlessly and unflinchingly over the hard road to final victory. You and I, all of us who are war workers, must stay on the job. We're going to skip a little bit. I'm going to hand back to Hartzell for some really important points. These are political points we're now going to make, okay? Over to you, Hartzell. Can the citizens of the nation now afford to turn over these bulwarks to the men who raised every possible obstacle to their original construction? I'll just interject. He's talking about the fortifications that Americans have created first in the New Deal to improve the landscape and infrastructure of the nation, and second, the defense capabilities of the nation. Back to you. Does the average American believe that those who fought tooth and nail against progressive legislation during the past 12 years can be trusted to cherish and preserve that legislation? 
Can it be that those who finance the bitter opposition to the New Deal through all these years have made an about face and are now willing and able to fight for the objectives of the New Deal? We have all heard Republican orators in this campaign call this administration everything under the sun, and they promise that they, if elected, and oh my friends, what a big if that is, they promise that if elected, they would institute the biggest house cleaning in history. It sort of brings to my mind that that is just the thing that the outs always say. What a job that would be, the house cleaning. It would mean, among other things, sweeping out with my administration the most efficient and most patriotic Republicans that could be found in the whole country. But despite these campaign promises of wholesale house cleaning, have you heard one word of specific criticism of any of the progressive laws that this administration has proposed and enacted? Yeah, I want to make something clear to everyone. Two things actually clear. First of all, there were many patriotic, in fact, liberal Republicans who were serving FDR, not only during this war effort, but before that in the New Deal. They wanted in on the New Deal. They were the, if you like, the enlightened, smart, progressive Republicans. I don't know when we've last seen those, by the way. It's been a long, long time since we have. The other thing I want to say is all of this house cleaning, I'm pretty sure one of Trump's speechwriters was ripping off FDR here, but decided he wouldn't say house cleaning. He'd say, let's drain the swamp. And FDR is talking about folks who are talking about draining a swamp with no ideas. It's like history is repeating itself. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it does. Let's put it this way. I prefer the way Mark Twain put it. History doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. It rhymes. FDR said, everybody knows that I was reluctant to run for the presidency again this year. But since this campaign developed, I tell you frankly that I've become most anxious to win. And I say that for the reason that never before in my lifetime has a campaign been filled with such misrepresentation, distortion, and falsehood. Never since 1928 have there been so many attempts to stimulate in America racial or religious intolerance. And back to you, Hartzell. When any politician or any political candidate stands up and says solemnly that there is a danger that the government of the United States, your government, could be sold out to the communists, then I say that that candidate reveals, and I'll be polite, a shocking lack of trust in America. He reveals a shocking lack of faith in democracy and the spiritual strength of our people. If there was ever a time in which that spiritual strength of our people was put to the test, that time was in the terrible depression from 1929 to 1933. Our people in those days might have turned to alien ideologies like communism or fascism, but... Our democratic faith was too sturdy. What the American people demanded in 1933 was not less democracy, but more democracy. And that's what they got. The American people proved in the black days of depression, as they have proved again in this war, that there is no chink in the armor of democracy. On this subject, and on all subjects, I say to you, my friends, what I said when you first conferred upon me the exalted honor of the presidency. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You know, that is actually quite a good speech. And I have to apologize to people. If you do go out and smartly buy my book, FDR and Democracy, that speech is not in the collection. It's not a major speech, but it is, to my mind, an important speech as FDR was looking 
beyond the horizon of the end of the war. So there you have it. Now, we've got one more speech we're going to cover of FDR, and we'll do that in a couple of weeks. Next Monday, Hartz will have a special surprise for all of you. But that last speech will be a speech that FDR did not live to deliver. He passed away, as we said, on this very day, April 12th, 1945. He had just finished the speech and he was due to deliver it the very next night on April 13th to a Democratic Party gathering. But he passed away on April 12th down in Warm Springs, Georgia. And we'll repeat that fact when we move on to that speech. But by the way, now that we'll have soon covered all of FDR's major capital D, capital E, capital M, capital O, capital C, capital R, capital A, capital T, capital I, capital C, Democratic speeches. We have more to do. We have more to do. We have other speeches to bring up. We have poetry to deliver. We've got a lot to come. Don't worry. The Casey Morning Show Tuesday Take Back America is far from over. The work continues. The struggle continues. And, you know, you're right. I didn't know anything about this speech until you sent me that link a few weeks ago. And I have read this speech, honestly, maybe some of the most of all the speeches we've talked about during this series. And in fact, I'm just going to go ahead and read it this last line because, you know, Trump did get something. All those stadium tours, the rallies, we made fun of them because, you know, they did become super spreader events toward the end there. But you know what, folks, you say this ever since I met you. It's not that we need someone to hold our hand and tell us that they're going to fight for us. Ignite that spirit within us. And we had tens of thousands of folks here who not only were fired up with the words of FDR, but that vision was reignited. And we don't have a vision right now. Like, I can't even take these words seriously if they came from Joe Biden. This was what FDR concluded this speech. My friends, it is this conception that I have the meaning of total victory. That conception is founded on faith, faith in the unlimited destiny, the unconquerable spirit of the United States of America. Where's that in 22, Harvey? You know what? Thank you. Thank you for including that last line and those words. Excellent. So, Professor K, you teased us up. We got a little special guest audio next week, yeah? Yeah, I'm going to leave it to you to choose which of the things we've talked about to present, but I hope people enjoy it. How about this for a teaser? Hello, somebody. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Professor K, my brother, where can these folks find you on the Twitterverse? It's at H-A-R-V-E-Y, letter J. K-A-Y-E, Harvey J-K. And I welcome everybody. You can get me at Hartzell965, the show at KC Morning Show. Send us your tweets. Send us questions. We would love to open it back up. We didn't get a chance to talk too much news of the day, but we have a new Supreme Court justice. In fact, the first black woman ever. Well done. Well said. You know, it's funny. Originally, before we began this particular taping, I was going to say to you, you want to put off doing another speech and start catching up on the news? But I think I think it's a timely speech that we offered today and we just checked off both boxes look at that you bet professor k my brother i love you in solidarity my comrade i'm hugging you through the zoom no i'm not gonna lie because i'm killing your five i'm a radical and i'm not gonna die on the 405 i'm a radical
tyrannical.